So in the mid-90s, I was stationed on a Coast Guard cutter in Port Angeles, Washington. And besides overseeing the engine room and doing law enforcement search and rescue stuff, I, I had this small team of junior mechanics that I was supervising. And the way you kind of advance in most military service is you have time in grade, and then you have performance reviews. You take tests in your area of specialty, and then you have to take these tests on, like, military history and customs and courtesies and how to wear your uniform and all this kind of stuff. So I, I was working with this guy, John, and he was an E2, and he was preparing to take the test to be an E3, and uh, I was his kind of mentor, supervisor guy, and I was like, John, I'll totally work with you, and he's like, no, I got this. I, I like to study on my own. I do better on my own. I said, fine. So uh, anyway, one night we had watch together. We had duty, so we're up all night on the ship, and uh, he says, I'm ready. Tomorrow I'm taking the test. Test me. So I say, okay, I'm gonna, I get my stuff, and this is on the military customs and courtesies part, and uh, I start asking him like an, e uh, an easy question, and he looks a little kind of confused. He's racking his brain, and, and I could tell his answer was sort of a guess, and he guessed right, and then I, I just keep on with the questions, and he, he's struggling. He's guessing. He's, he's like, what? I have been studying so hard, and I've not heard any of these questions. I'm like, that is so weird. Let me see your book. And then I look at his book, and he's been studying the material for E4. <laughs> he was completely doing the wrong test preparation. Now, thankfully for John, he could just simply postpone the test a month, and, but, and then in the next year, when he was going to advance to E4, he was already, like, leg up. So I had already studied that material. But what if the stakes were higher? The way we live, the choices we make, the things we do or fail to do, all of those things that we do prepare us for who we're becoming. All of our collected behaviors and attitudes are, are building blocks in determining our character, who we actually are. What if many of our mentors out in the world, our, our teachers, be they on television, radio, books, what if many of the influences in our world were actually preparing us for the wrong things, for the things that don't really matter? What if the values that we thought were so important of influence and affluence in the world were actually not leading us up, but leading us down? What if the world was upside down? That's pretty much what Jesus says on multiple occasions, and that's definitely what Jesus has to say in the text that we're going to look at tonight. I was out of town last week, but you may recall that two weeks ago I preached out of John chapter 6, 12 through 16, and you can look there now if you want in your pew Bible. It's on page 1033, 1033. In that text I preached on two weeks ago, we see Jesus heading up on a mountaintop to pray all night long. It was a moment of discernment for him where he was listening to the Father about what to do next. And it was in that moment that he knows what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to call disciples to himself. He's supposed to call 12 disciples to himself. And he's supposed to call the 12 disciples to himself. So these 12 particular dudes. I mean, Sith Lords only get one apprentice. Jesus got 12. I mean, this is pretty serious stuff. And it's right there where I want to pick up the story. And I'm going to read... John or Luke 6, 17 through 26. Uh, if, if you're able, please stand as we read the Gospel of Luke. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. And there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem 
and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured, and all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming for him, from him and healing them all. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad, for in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Oh Lord, help us. Even in saying those words, such conviction and confusion, such a desire to explain away and to run and hide, help us to see how this word fits into your gospel, your good news. We pray for your help, Holy Spirit, to reveal uh, this good news to us. Amen. You may be seated. As the story goes, Jesus comes down from the mountain where he spent the night in prayer, and he stands at a level place, it says, and masses of people are coming to him. And, and Luke wants us to know that it's from all over the place, from Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal towns. I mean, everybody's coming out to see Jesus uh, to do two things, really. To hear him, we read in the gospel, and to be healed by him and released from demonic oppression. So we, they want to hear him, and they want healing, and they want deliverance, and stuff's happening. Power, it says, is coming out of Jesus. And the scene is set now that Jesus has authority over all of these realms. Um, he, with his actions, he's showing he's got authority over all the spiritual realm and over the physical realm. And now we know as readers that what he's about to say carries weight. Like we should listen to this guy who can control the physical and the spiritual. So the text continues, and it says, and turning his gaze, which is just like, if you just imagine that scene, all this stuff's going on, and all of a sudden Jesus says, it's teaching time, and he turns his gaze to his disciples, and he begins to say, blessed are the poor. Plural. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Does that sound familiar? Where have we heard something like that before? Anyone just shout it out. Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, right, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. In that text, we read something a little different. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, then he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and he, he goes on and on. In Matthew, we have Jesus preaching up on a mountain, in Luke, we have a very similar sermon preached on a plane. 
besides the clear difference in geography, there's also a huge difference in the length of these two sermons. In, in the Sermon on the Mount, there are 137 verses. In the Sermon on the Plain, there's 30 verses. So what's going on here? Some people say Matthew is trying to present a Moses motif. So they have Jesus going up on a mountain, just like Moses did to receive the Ten Commandments, and you have Jesus on the mountain expounding upon those, having authority over those commandments. So, uh, so some people think that that's what uh, Matthew's trying to do, that he puts Jesus on a mountain to get that point across. Others focus on the wording and claim that Matthew's audience is more Jewish and that Luke's is uh, uh, more towards Gentiles. So you've got Matthew with all of the stuff about Jesus fulfilling the law and the prophets in the Sermon on the Mount, but in Sermon on the Plain, it doesn't have any of that stuff. But in my mind, that argument falls flat as soon as you get to the beginning of Luke. Because if, if Luke's audience isn't uh, aware of the Jewish scriptures, how do you have in Luke 2 these angels saying that, that Jesus uh, is you know, the Messiah, the, the one who's expected to come? How do you have Mary's song, which is really a riff on Hannah's song from 1 Samuel, the Hebrew scriptures? It seems to me we're, de we're dealing with two separate teaching moments in the life of Jesus. Matthew recorded the Sermon on the Mount. Luke, the Sermon on the Plain. Why are they so similar? Well, in a preaching class I had, one of my first ever preaching classes in undergrad, uh, we were studying Haddon Robinson's book, which is uh, like, like the staple preaching book everybody gets. And he has this axiom. He says, every preacher has one sermon. If you've listened to me enough, you kind of know, like, I always talk about the kingdom of God. Why? Because I think that's kind of Jesus' sermon, too. Every preacher has one sermon. That is, every preacher has been affected by Jesus in some way that his or her heart can't help but saying basically the same stuff in different ways over and over again. And Jesus taught about lots of different things, didn't he? But his main message, his one core sermon, is that with his incarnation, the kingdom of God is breaking in. A new day has dawned. The time for repentance has come. Salvation is here and his name is Jesus. Turn around from the way you've believing. Put your trust in me. That's Jesus' main core of his message. Both the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain basically get you to that same place. But they have two separate teachings, two separate occasions to two separate groups of people. What a gift. We get to hear it from two perspectives. And maybe the best way to approach hearing Jesus is to look at how he says what he says. There's a very clear structure. So if you turn to page 1033, you'll see in there this clear structure. There's an announcement of blessing for four blessings. Blessing the poor, the hungry, those who weep, and those who are oppressed and hated because of loyalty to Jesus. These blessings are not describing four different kinds of people. They're not describing four different kinds of people, but they're four attributes of the kind of person who is being changed by Jesus. And these four blessings are coupled with, mated with, four woes. Woe to the rich, woe to the full, woe to those who laugh, woe to those who are well-liked by the powers that be. Even a surface reading of this text presents problems, right? Like, what are some of the things you're thinking of? Any, any, come on. Be like, be like small children. Don't be afraid. Children, be like small children. You, I laughed earlier. I think I probably laughed already in the sermon. I thought that thing about the Sith Lord was kind of funny, so I laughed inside. 
Ja. 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 Totally. Yeah, I waffle back and forth. I'm full right now. What does that mean? Yeah, so there, there's, there's problems with this text. Um, may, it should make us squirm a little bit. Let's, let's focus in and pay attention to that squirming. You know, a, a good spiritual director will always tell you, pay attention to where you're uncomfortable. Let's talk about that, they'll say. Oh, great. So what I'm going to do, because this is so, such a massive thing, is there's four beatitude blessings and four woes. What I'm going to do is chop it in half. We're going to do two this week and two next week. So we're going to take the first two blessings and the first two woes today, all right? First order of business, what is a beatitude? What does that even mean? What is Jesus saying about these qualities, about uh, why are we blessed or beatituded uh, when we're poor and hungry? Beatitudes are simply statements of blessing. They're declarations, statements of fact not requests or commands. I'm going to say that one more time because you're not going to believe me as we keep reading. We've, we've come to believe through, I don't know, whatever teaching I had, that the Beatitudes are commands, that you're supposed to try really hard and be like these things. That is not what a Beatitude is. A Beatitude is a statement of fact, not a request or a command. Jesus is not telling us to be to go be poor and hungry. He's saying that those who are poor and hungry are blessed. Part of our problem with figuring out what Jesus is on about is the fact that we don't actually have a great English word to describe what Jesus is saying. The word we translate as happy or blessed is the Greek word makarios. Blessed is kind of okay. But, I mean, let's be honest. If you've been on Facebook or Instagram, a lot of people are hashtag blessed, right? Um, you go to Maui, and you sit on the beach, you take the selfie, hashtag blessed, right? Um, you may be blessed, that may be, but going to Maui and being on the beach doesn't make you blessed, all right? Otherwise, blessedness is simply a function of how I feel or where I am or experiencing something extraordinary. I mean, you could change the scenario where the person traveling to Maui loses her luggage, right? Shows up, so she's got the bedhead and nothing to go into the bathroom because to, to fix the hair, so the hair's matted, and, and uh, so she's worn, um, you know those sweats with the bedazzling, like it says pink or something like that, I've seen the, on the plane a lot of people wear those, so anyway, so you've got the, the yoga pants, the bedazzled pants, and the bedhead, and you show up, and you realize, oh, my ID isn't here, so the hotel says, sorry, I can't check you in, taxi drives away, you take the picture, I mean, does anyone post that picture? <laughs> Hashtag, blessed and bedazzled and frazzled, right? I mean, you, 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 that's, that's not what our culture is on about. Like, that we wouldn't consider that necessarily blessed, that situation. I like how N.T. Wright defines being blessed. He says, blessedness is what happens when the creator God is both at work in someone's life and through that person's life. Blessedness is what happens when the creator God is at work in someone's life and through a person's life. In Luke's gospel, we've been confronted with the reality that God is at work in and through people's lives and that he's fulfilling his promises. And we learn from the angels in Luke 2 that the Savior has been born. We learn from Mary's song that her, son, uh, her son's arrival would turn the world upside down, that the humble poor would be lifted up and the oppressive powerful would be brought low. 
We hear Jesus' first public sermon in the synagogue, at least according to Luke, saying that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives. He's here to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus has come to proclaim good news. We cannot forget that. Luke sets it up. The angels tell us, Mary's song tells us, Zechariah's song tells us, and then his first sermon tells us. So everything we read after that, we have to filter through, okay, this is weird, but it's good news. Therefore, these beatitudes are good news. It might take some digging to figure it out, but they're good news. They're not commands for how you and I are supposed to become. They're announcements about the kind of people who will inherit the kingdom of God. The kind of people that God works in and God works through. Hashtag blessed. Be that as it may, we've still got some challenges. Blessed are the poor. Here's the craziest part about that. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is, not will be, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Somehow, the kingdom is available to the poor in the present. Equally disturbing for a Jewish reader is, woe to the rich, for they have received their comfort. In a world that taught wealth is from God and a sign of blessing, how can the rich not be included in the kingdom of God? Head-scratcher, disturbing. Jesus has got their attention and our attention. Let's be clear right from the get-go. There is nothing, nothing in Scripture that romanticizes being poor. There's nothing in Scripture that leads us to believe that being impoverished and being hungry are good things, let alone desirable things. So what does Matthew mean uh, when he says, why does Matthew add blessed are the poor in spirit while Luke has blessed are the poor? Some have wrongly understood this to, to mean that Matthew has kind of spiritualized Luke and that Luke maybe has socialized Matthew, that they mean two different things. But in reality, both versions of the beatitude are the same, and there's two main reasons for this. First, in the biblical canon, especially in the prophetic writings and in the Psalms, the poor are never declared righteous because they're poor. They are always referred to, if they're declared righteous, as the pious poor. Unlike the rich who have their needs met by by worldly goods, the pious poor are those who know they're hungry and thirsty for God and are hungry and thirsty for God. There's a huge difference between just being poor and still spurning God and saying, I hate you because I'm poor, and being poor and hungry and desperate and leaning upon God. That is the person in the prophets and the Psalms that is blessed. Second, we know that poverty is seen not as an ideal state in the scriptures because God is always calling us to end poverty. He's always, like the, during the prayer time I read from Isaiah 25, the promise of the new kingdom is this banqueting table where we're invited to God's table. He mentions choice wine a bunch, which I love, and, and meat off the bone. You know, marrow, I don't really eat marrow, I'm not a dog, but 
was good back then, yeah, I guess. Uh, but th- this idea of a lavish feast, that's a, one vision of heaven. And, and the other piece is that God is always calling his people to help the poor so that they aren't poor anymore. And he's always on their case about when the rich are neglecting the poor. So we see that poverty isn't like God is not wanting us to be poor. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor and blessed are the hungry, he's not saying that being poor and hungry is a good state of being. He's drawing on the biblical station that the righteous person presents. The person who's dependent on God above all else. Jesus also draws on the prophets when he uses the familiar language of woe. Woe is an attitude of sorrow for those who have turned their back and hardened their hearts toward God. Woe to those who are rich now, for they have received their comfort in full. This immediately makes me think of Isaiah 5, 8. Listen to this. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there's no more room so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. So the idea is this, uh, the the wealthy person uh, has a house, buys up the land around them, gets another house, joins it all together, buys up so much land around them, two things happen. One is no one else can live there unless they are an indentured servant or slave. And the other thing is you're so isolated from community that you're all by yourself on this island. in many ways, is a definition of poverty, by the way. So just as the poor in the Bible represent those who are dependent on God, the rich represent those who are independent from God, or those who assume that that God is on their side because of their social status. And they don't really seek him in a devotional way, and in a heartfelt way. Three short stories will illustrate the fact that wealth by itself is not what Jesus is condemning. So breathe easy, but don't breathe too easy, because it's kind of hard still. (laughs) In Luke, Jesus approaches a rich tax collector named Levi, otherwise known as Matthew, who, of course, writes the Gospel of Matthew. He knows he's rich, and he calls on him to come follow him. Matthew responds in faith, and he puts his devotion and obedience on Jesus above all else. So then, Woe on the rich is not a permanent judgment. It is a warning, a warning to put Jesus first whenever riches come in the way of our obedience and devotion to Jesus. Okay? So if it was just woe on the rich, Jesus would have never gone up to Levi and never invited him to follow. Okay? But instead, Jesus is always pursuing, always trying to break down our walls and our calloused hearts. So he goes up to Levi and offers Come follow me. And Levi, Matthew, he responds in faith. He's blessed at that point. Okay? Another example, Zacchaeus, Luke 19. You know the story, wee little man. Rich, the text even says he's very wealthy. He is not liked, so in reality he's, he's actually poor. And he's been cheating people. And so Jesus comes and, of course, inv- invites himself over for dinner. And Zacchaeus says, come on over. And Zacchaeus repents of his greed. He gives back not only what he stole, but he helps the poor out by giving four times what he stole. And here's the interesting part. So Zacchaeus was rich. Jesus sought him out. But nowhere in the text 
does it say that Zacchaeus stopped being a tax collector? Like, there's actually a legitimate way to be a tax collector. You don't have to cheat people to be a tax collector. So for all we know, Zacchaeus maintained his position as a tax collector, probably did it with integrity from then on as a Jesus follower, but he was wealthy. You're still making good money as a tax collector in the first century. Now contrast Matthew and Zacchaeus with the story of the rich young ruler. In this story, the young man comes to Jesus inquiring how he might be saved. And in the text, after the guy's showing off how many commandments he's followed, it says that Jesus looked at him with compassion. Jesus knew that this young man saw his relationship with God as an addition to his already really good life. And so Jesus, the doctor of the soul, the surgeon of the soul, prescribes a course of action. Sell all you have and give it to the poor. Like, you need this. This will heal you. This isn't for everyone, but this is for you. This is a hurdle for you. And the young man left in sorrow. Why? The text says he owned many properties. The cost was too great. He wanted the benefit of God without being dependent on God alone. He was still afraid to let go of his grip of the world. And here's the truly sobering reality about these two beatitudes. They are not about punishment. The woes are are warnings. If you place your faith on riches, in comfort, on insurance policies, and in your ability to insulate yourselves from others, then Jesus says, you are receiving, present tense, your comfort in full. Let me tell you a little nugget I learned that makes all the difference. The Greek word for comfort, hang with me now, is paraklesis. Say it. Paraklesis. It comes from the Greek root kaleo, which means to call. Paraklesis is comfort. Woe to you who are rich in your own independence from God, for you are receiving your paraklesis right now. Do you know how Jesus describes the Holy Spirit all throughout the Gospel of John with the word paraclete? Say it. Paraclete. From the same root as paraclesis. The woe is that while those of us who are materially rich may be doing well for ourselves, we are getting our comfort now at the expense of the comforter, the Holy Spirit. What use of the Spirit do I have if I can do what I want, when I want, buy what I need, and influence the outcomes in my life through my vast social networks? What possible use do I have of the comforter if I have my comfort? That's what this is about. I have good news. Jesus has good news. It's his sermon. I'm just preaching on it. When we put it this way, even those who are materially rich, relationally rich, religiously rich, by the grace of God, we can see that we're actually poor. Jesus turns our world upside down, and some of you may feel poor this evening. You may feel distant 
and drifting from God. You may feel hungry for him, or you may be there and confess, you know what, I'm just too full to be hungry for him. I wish I was. My desire is that I was hungrier for Jesus. But if you recognize at this moment that you are actually poor, you are blessed. You are blessed. God is working in you and will work through you. It is in this place, not of humiliation from Jesus, but in humility that we can receive the kingdom of heaven, that we can receive the grace of Jesus. And we can choose a life of dependence on him and not of ourselves. Pray with me, please. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you care enough to say the hard words to us. Most of us in this place have most of the things that we need to function in the world. We have relationships. We have stuff. We have clothing and food. And we live in a world that is constantly telling us to be independent, self-sufficient, Lord Jesus, as you bring to mind, as you convict us of the things that we are holding on to that are keeping us from fully trusting you, would you speak to us about what to do next? Whether it's giving something away or turning our attention to you. I pray for a change of heart and for courage to follow through, Lord. We've heard these things before. You convict us in our, our moments of, of prayer and our moments of, of surprise. But Lord, we are so fearful. Would you give us courage to take those next steps, whatever it is for each of us, Lord? We thank you for your graciousness in constantly pursuing us. We thank you for examples, even in Scripture, of men like like Matthew and Zacchaeus, who, who were able to navigate the world uh, in a worldly sense without you, but Lord, they had the courage to trust you. And you didn't leave them without. You didn't abandon them. Bless you, Lord. Bless you.